No. Um, go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 10. We're going to be looking at John 10 chapters, uh, verses 22 through 42, finishing up the chapter. Now, as you're turning there, I want to talk to you about this word you're already seeing on your handout, which is the word paradigm. Now, that word was, was introduced to me while I was taking a class, and the professor told these stories about how paradigm shifts happened. And it's actually become this term now that we use a lot in our society when we talk about paradigm shifts, and we use it in lots of different ways. The reality is, though, it's a pretty recent term. It was a philosopher that kind of started using it, but he used it in a specific way to talk about issues of science. And he talked about how in the scientific realm, everyone kind of works within this common set of beliefs. They all have these the similar assumptions, and they all have this similar construct of how they think things work, and everything they do is according to that set of of rules, and that would be their paradigm. But every once in a while, scientifically, there's something that happens where there's a shift, where there's a change, where those rules no longer apply, and they do something new. And we can look at this in a scientific way when we think about how did people, back a long time ago, what shape did they assume the world was? Flat. Some people are going back to that now, but it used to, it's been something that's been proven that's not, it's not flat. But all of the scientific discoveries, all of the, the scientific moving forward was based on the assumption that the world was flat. And they did all of their look and, and figuring things out until there were certain things, certain anomalies that couldn't fit. They couldn't rectify with this paradigm of a flat world. And so then they had to do a paradigm shift to now a round world, a globe. There's other things like that. We can continue the, that idea with um, what did people assume was the center of the universe or even of our system, the earth, geocentrism, right? The world is in the middle. But now what do we know the center of our system is? It's a solar system heliocentric, right? And so these different paradigms, when people got to them, up until that point, no one was willing to even assume that these things were true because they had all of these assumptions. But then there's a shift. Now, with that shift, that shift makes all the difference. What would happen if you make these discoveries of, wait a second, the world is not flat, it's totally different, and someone kept on living according to that old paradigm. The things that they would be seeing, they're both looking at the exact same facts, and yet they're coming to radically different conclusions. What we're going to see, and what we have seen in the Gospel of John, is that the Jewish people have a paradigm. They have assumptions, they have things that they're interpreting and they're looking at things and saying, this is how it's going to work. This is the system in which God is going to do what he said. They're looking at true facts. And yet, some of those facts aren't correct. Uh, as you can imagine this, another way of, of even talking about this is um, a lot of you like watching different movies or books, different things. And when you're watching a movie, 
a lot of times the, the movie will start telling you about things that are going to come, right? And, and if you're like me, and to the, my kids don't enjoy this about me, but I'm always like, oh, I think this is what's going to happen. Oh, I bet I, bet I know what's going to happen. Or if I'm reading books, I'm always, oh, I bet that guy's going to come back. And it drives them nuts. Until you reach the movie where the actual problem is resolved, sometimes you're right, but more often than not, you're like, oh man, I did not see that coming. It's even more when there's a big space in between the things. So like right now, uh, uh, Pastor Billy, myself, and John Ritchie, uh, uh, Stephen Page, we are all reading this series of, of, of fantasy books, but the last one hasn't come out. And the amount of theories that we've come up with of all these things, and because it's been more time, our theories keep on getting bigger and bigger, and I'm, I'm sure that we're going to be proven wrong, but we're doing this. Same thing happened with Star Wars, 20 years between making of different movies. The Jews have had centuries in which they're looking at all of these true things that the Bible has said, this is what's happening, and they've made up all of these theories. But their paradigm is limited. So Jesus comes, and Jesus says, listen, you thought I was going to do this? I'm not just doing that. I'm doing this. He continually shows them that their paradigm was limited. They couldn't see the fullness of truth. He had something better to show them. And so throughout the Gospel of John, we keep on seeing some people who come to the point of accepting this new and true paradigm. Oh, this is what you were saying. This is what that clue meant. But others refuse to do that. The main focus of our passage is written for unbelievers. It's written to those who do not believe in Christ. And the question, if you're here and you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus, what's the paradigm, what's the thing that does not allow you to come to faith in Jesus? Because Jesus is going to address that with the Jews that he talks about. On the other side, though, I assume that many, if not most of you, are believers. So what do we do in a passage that's mainly dealing, that the main point is dealing with unbelievers? What do we do with that? Well, the other side of that that we're going to do, even though it's not written to believers, what we have is an example of someone who lives according to the true paradigm. So as we're going through this passage, what I want you to do is to observe Jesus. How does Jesus, knowing the truth, how does he live? Here's our big idea. Those who are not sheep reject the true shepherd because they seek a different savior we're going to look at people who are not sheep and what they do is they reject jesus they reject the messiah because they're seeking something different they're looking with a different paradigm so the first thing we're going to look at as we're starting out we're going to look at that jesus confronts the jews different paradigm he's going to expose it he's going to show the truth so let's look at verses uh, 22 through 24 at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. 
Now it starts out by giving us the setting. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. Now, why, why is this detail shared? As we've seen in the Gospel of John, John is very intentional with what he shares. He doesn't just share things just because. Everything has a purpose, which we see in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. We see the purpose. Well, this provides us with a clue. John has used feasts for different things throughout his gospel. One of them is just to give a time for when things are happening. In chapter 5, he says, hey, um, at that time there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus was in Jerusalem. He doesn't tell us which feast, but he's using that as a way to progress the story, because there's multiple feasts that he mentions. But the other way that John uses feasts is to show that Jesus is the true fulfillment of those things. Even last week when we were in Colossians 2, we talked about these different things, um, different festivals or um, different services in, of the new moon and Sabbath that Colossians talks about. And then Paul says, but these things were a shadow of what was to come where Christ is the substance. So in this, we see that Jesus comes and multiple times there are different feasts that John presents in which Christ is the true fulfillment of that feast. The whole book starts talking about Passover. It was Passover. And then what does John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the greater fulfillment of Passover. We saw later in the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles, and we saw the imagery in those feasts of both the light and the water. And in both of those, Jesus makes the claim, I am the light of the world. He says, anyone who thirsts, let him come to me and I will give them living water. Jesus is showing that he's the greater fulfillment. So what do we see here? What is this feast of dedication? You're not going to find it in the Old Testament. If you look back at the Old Testament and try to find the feast of dedication, it's not there. Does anyone know the other name for feast of dedication? Hanukkah. Hanukkah didn't happen in the Old Testament. It happened in the period of silence between the two Testaments. You have all the way through the Old Testament, and then there's 400 years where there's nothing. And in that period, there happened Hanukkah, which these people celebrated. They even called it the Feast of Booths in the Winter. And here's what happened during um, what caused them to celebrate Hanukkah. There was a foreign oppressive nation that came in and took over Israel. And during that time, they went to the temple and they desecrated the temple. They did what was an abomination to all of Israel. But a man named Judah Maccabeus rose up, he started a rebellion, and they pushed out their oppressors. They cleansed the temple. Now, think about this as we're thinking, okay, why is John bringing this up? Why is John letting us know the Feast of Dedication? Well, put yourself again in the setting. All of these Jews are celebrating something. They're celebrating exactly what they've been looking for. A man who rose up who removed the oppression that they had in them, who freed Israel and cleansed the temple. 
all of those things, if you were to say, give me the archetype, give me exactly what the Jews want in a Messiah, that's what they'd be looking for. Exactly what Judah did. And so you have this idea of what's happening here. And so John kind of tells us there to just tell us what's the underlying emotion happening right now. But there's also an element that as we go through this passage that they were even going to see that Jesus fulfills what they're looking for, but not in the way that they're looking for it. So look what it says. Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him. Now, when it says they gathered around him, that's kind of like the same thing as they surrounded him. Now, what have we seen so far of the interaction between Jesus and the Jews within the temple? Has it been mostly good? What, what's really happened? Well, way back in chapter 1, Jesus cleansed the temple. That started an uproar where they demanded to know where, who he was. Later, he has healed people. He healed the first man. Um, and, and all of the time, these Jews keep on going against them. And so, in fact, in chapter 5, in chapter 8, what the response that they've had, or 7 and 8, is that they've wanted to stone him, and they've wanted to arrest him. Jesus already knows that's how they see him. So put yourself in that setting. Jesus, they've tried to stone him. They've tried to arrest him. Jesus is now walking in the temple, which, if you're like me, I'm like, why are you doing that? <laughs> like, we know what they've done before, and yet Jesus is doing it, and they surround him. One of the first things that we can even see in Jesus is his confidence. Jesus, at the end of the previous passage that we looked at, says, I lay my life down. No one takes it from me. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus knows, even as they surround him, they have no power over him. But it's a little ominous. So Jesus is there. They're surrounding him, and what do they ask? Look what it says. They said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. The Jews are looking for a yes or no answer. Just make it simple. Are you the Christ? Stop keeping us in suspense. And the Christ, John tells us again at the very beginning, Messiah is Christ, okay? The Christ, that's what they're asking. Are you the Messiah? So why are they asking that? Well, on one side, it's because Jesus has not told them plainly. Now, you might be saying, wait a second, Stephen. We've been in the Gospel of John for a long time now, and the whole thing we've been talking about is who is Jesus. And every single message, you're saying that John has given us an answer to that question. So now you're going to say that Jesus hasn't told them? Yes and no. Has Jesus revealed his true identity? Absolutely. Over and over again, Jesus has shown the reality of who he is, that there's no other person he could be other than the Messiah. At the same time, Jesus has never said it plainly in simple terms, I am the Christ. Why do you think that is? 
Why do you think that Jesus has used all of these other terms, all of these other metaphors, without just saying plainly? Wouldn't it have been easier? To, I mean, they're already waiting for the Messiah. Wouldn't it have been easier to just to step out and say, hey guys, it's me. I'm the Messiah. Well, this goes back again to that whole paradigm. What Messiah are the Jews looking for? Are the Jews seeking the Messiah that Christ is, or are they looking for a different Savior? They're looking for something different. Now, is there overlap? Are they looking for some things? Do they understand some true things of what they're supposed to be looking for? Yes, but they've looked at it with their own theories. They've looked at it according to their own assumptions. This is what they think is going to happen. And so if Jesus came and just said, and he could, he could say it honestly, he could say it truthfully, hey, I am the Messiah, does that truly give them what they need? No. Because the work that he has, what the process that in which he does it, is not just a matter of them accepting him to be their version of a Messiah. Many people in this world think that they are saved because they've believed in their own version of Jesus. Believing in your own version of Jesus does not bring salvation. You must believe in Jesus, in who he truly is, how he presents himself. And so Jesus never says he's the Messiah the way that they're asking plainly. In fact, they, normally they ask, give us a sign for these things. Do you know the only time in which Jesus says plainly so far in John who he is? Where he says, I am the Christ. He answers the terms in that, those terms. The woman at the well. The woman at the well says, we know that the Messiah will be these things. And he says, I am him. Why does Jesus answer plainly to her, but not to these Jews? Because the woman at the well was at a place where she could receive the paradigm that Christ was offering. This is the truth. Because Jesus did the same thing. He also challenged her paradigms. It's not on this mountain or that mountain. He changed things that she was willing to see, but he was willing to offer who he was because she was ready to receive that. But he does something different with the Jews. But here's the other reason why I think they asked the question. On one side, it's because they haven't had that answer, but there's something deeper going on here. The reason they ask him to give it in words versus signs, again, uh, I was talking to Sherry Holloway about this earlier, and she made that case, that point to me that every other time they ask him, they say, show us, give us a sign. And yet this time they say, tell us. Why? I think it's because they want to condemn him. They want something in which they can say, oh, look what he just said. We all heard it, right? Everyone was surrounding him. We all heard it. Don't let him get away. We heard what he said. They ask him to tell him plainly. So look at how Jesus answers them. Looking at verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. This is what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to expose their wrong assumptions. Jesus knows their heart. He knows how they will respond to him. And yet Jesus answered their question, but he does it in a specific way. Again, could he have just answered their question by saying, yes, I am the Christ? He could. 
But instead, he confronts their paradigm. He exposes their wrong assumptions. He answers the question in a way that forces them to see the part that they disagree. This is something that is fascinating when we look at how Jesus does this. So often when we are doing evangelism, we're we're trying to find this common ground where we say, hey, what do you believe about Jesus? I can present Jesus in a way in which I, a Muslim, a Catholic, a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, where we would all agree. I could do that. And yet what Jesus does is he immediately addresses, he immediately exposes the area where there's a disagreement. Why does he do that? Because he knows that that's the thing that needs to be addressed. He's not looking to just say things that will get him the results of them believing in him. He wants the true result of their faith in him. I told you and you do not believe. Their claim is that they need more information. Whether or not that's actually what they're looking for, just whether, or maybe they're just looking to condemn him, what they're claiming is that they need more information. Jesus shows them that's not their problem. Their true problem is that they refuse to believe. They reject their true Messiah. I told you, and you do not believe. So how has he told them? The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Throughout John, we've seen this theme of witness. Especially in chapter 5, Jesus gives this whole list of things that bear witness to him. The works that he does, these things bear witness. This is, obvi- this is the only logical thing that makes sense of who I am. Jesus has told them in different ways in his claims. And yet they do not believe. This is the first assumption that he, that he starts working with. Because here's the reason. Why don't they believe? You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. The first assumption Jesus challenges, that this is where Jesus is seeking to shift their false paradigm to a true one, is what's the the assumption? The assumption is that the Messiah is going to guarantee, is absolutely going to come for Israel. If you are part of Israel, you are guaranteed to be part of the blessing. Their assumption is, well, wait a second, of course we're sheep. Of course we're going to receive this blessing. Of course we know for whom the Messiah is going to come. But Jesus is challenging that. Because Jesus says, you are not among my sheep. The Jews assume that they are guaranteed to be part of his blessing by nature of their heritage, by nature of who is their father. They assume their blessing They also assume the blessing will be limited to just them. Those are the ways that they've interpreted the Old Testament. But Jesus challenges that. He starts challenging that at the beginning of the Gospel of John. Back in John 1 verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's not because they were born of blood or the will of flesh. They aren't saved because of Abraham. Jesus makes that clear in chapter 8, which Pastor Billy preached through, where they say, we are children of our father Abraham. And Jesus says, you're not children of Abraham. If you were children of Abraham, you would believe like he believed. Whose children does he say they are? Of Satan. 
they assumed that just because of how, who, they, who their lineage was that they would be saved. What they didn't understand is that the Jews won't be saved because of the Jewish blood that runs through their veins. They will be saved because of the blood that spilled from Christ's veins. That's what they couldn't see. That was the assumption that they got wrong. They're like, no, I've got Abraham's blood right here. And Jesus is saying, that's not the blood that saves you. It's my blood that saves you. The other thing that they assumed, again, is that all of the blessings were limited for them. Again, Jesus challenges that. All who believe. John the Baptist in chapter 1, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. John 3.16, The Father loved the world. Even in our last passage, when Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. The blessing comes not from being part of the flock of Israel, but from being a sheep who follows the shepherd. Jesus exposes their faulty paradigm. The paradigm they are functioning under is keeping them from seeing the truth. And because they cannot see the truth, they miss the true work that the shepherd does. What they're doing is they're thinking, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to receive or believe anything. We just have to, you just have to reveal who the Messiah is. There's no work. There's no response to that truth. And Jesus is saying, no, you must respond. The reason you're missing me is because you do not believe. The reason you're missing me is because you are not one of the sheep. The second assumption that they have is with the work that the Father does, or that, the, that Jesus does. They assume they know what the Messiah will do. Again, if we rethink of the Feast of Dedication, that perfectly summarizes the work that they think the Messiah will do. That he will free Israel on this earth. That he will remove their human oppressors. That he will establish a kingdom. Will Jesus do those things? Yes. But will he do it the way that they're expecting? No. Look at the work that Jesus does. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is the work that the Messiah came to do. He was going to free them. He would remove their oppressors. He would cleanse them. But they were looking at it limited and thinking that it's just this. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to do something so much greater. I'm not here to free you from Rome. I'm not here to remove that oppression. I'm here to free you from sin. I'm here to free you from death. I'm here to free you and to cleanse you so that you can truly worship the Father. Look what he does. The Son of Man comes to seek and save the lost. This is the paradigm of the work that the Jews missed. Look what the shepherd does. He gives them eternal life. That's grace. They will never perish. That's mercy. We deserve to die. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. There's our security. This is the work that the shepherd does, but that they weren't willing to see. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's the foundation. Jesus is looking and showing his relationship with the Father. The Father is greater. No one takes him from from his hand. 
Now look what Jesus is saying at the end here. Two times he talks about the sheep being snatched out of a hand. Whose hand first does he say no one will snatch them out of? His own hand. The son's hand. The the, the shepherd's hand. And then he says no one will snatch them out of the father's hand. Now you might look at that and you say, well, whose hand are they in? Like what, what exactly are we saying? Well, that's where Jesus goes then. I and the father are one. This is the greatest truth that the Jews have rejected. This is the paradigm that they're not willing to think through. They've looked at the the whole of the Old Testament scripture, and this is the assumption that they've made. The Messiah is going to be a man. He's going to be human. That's true. Right at the beginning, from the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, from the line of Shem, from the line of Abraham, from the line of, of Jacob and Judah, from the line of David. Now, if I say, hey, someone from your line is going to do this thing, are you going to assume that that person is going to be a dog? No, what are you going to assume if I say it's one of your descendants? It's a person. So that's true. But what they didn't see is that all of the promises that kept on being added in the Old Testament, no mere human could do those things. But they were limited. The great truth that we see throughout the Gospel of John, where John is going, is the work that Jesus is going to do on the cross. That's a huge theme. What Christ does. But the foundation that John lays before that is so important. Because it's not just a guy who dies on the cross. Lots of guys die on crosses. Peter died on the cross. That didn't change my life. The foundation that John and Jesus are continually laying is who is this man? It's the incarnation. How does the book of John begin? In the beginning was the word And the Word was God. And the Word took on flesh. What truth does John start his gospel with? The truth of the incarnation. Because if it's just some guy like they're expecting, some Messiah, there's not going to be an everlasting kingdom. There's not going to be salvation from sins. It needs to be something more. What's so interesting then is what John does as one of the highlights of his book is how there are different people that get to the point of of turning away from their false paradigm and seeing the true paradigm of who Jesus is. That starts at the beginning when John says, I myself did not know him. John the Baptist didn't know who Jesus was, but then it's revealed to him and look what he says. I have seen and borne witness that this is is the Son of God. What is John saying? This man is God. Nathaniel in chapter 1, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Yes, I see the work of the Messiah, but the greater thing is that you are the Son of God. The Samaritans say, this is indeed the Savior of the world. Simon Peter says, you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One, which in the Old Testament was something that God was called. You are the Holy One of God. 
Even with the story of the blind man, where Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. Our next chapter, Martha, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Do you see that John keeps on showing these examples of people who get to the point where they can see the truth of the incarnation, that only God could do this, that the Messiah is God in flesh? In fact, the end of the book, which is almost serves as the climax of the book, We've looked many times at the theme, these things are written so that you may believe. Right before that, we have the final confession of someone who did not believe, Thomas. And Thomas's words, right before John says, this is why I wrote the book, these are his words, my Lord and my God. The greatest truth the Jews are refusing to see is that the Messiah they are looking for is God in flesh. So Jesus is exposing the paradigm, the limit of their paradigm, what they're not willing to see. And we we know that he hit the nail right on top of the head because of what happens in the next verse. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Now it says that there, the Jews picked up stones, and this is the word I missed the first several times I was reading this, picked up stones again. This is the clue that when they asked that question before, they were looking to condemn him, because this isn't the first time that these guys have tried to stone him. They pick up stones again, but why, why? Jesus says, hey, Is it because of the good things that I've done that you're going to stone me? And look at their reason. No, it's not because of that. It is not for a good work. They don't challenge him on the good works. They don't say they weren't good works. They're willing to accept that. It's not because of that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God. Here's some ironies with, with that. Who is the one person Who is the one human in which it was impossible for him to sin by blasphemy? Jesus. He was God. And yet they're saying you're being, you're a blasphemer. Here's the second thing. What is, what is it when we say that you are committing blasphemy, they're saying you making yourself like God. They're saying that he is committing extreme pride. You're saying you're equal to God? And yet in all of human history, has there any, ever been someone more humble than Christ? Philippians tells us he humbled himself to the point of dying on the cross. He took on human flesh. There's never been someone that's been more humble. Look at those ironies, but here's the greatest irony. You remember how we've seen multiple times through the Gospel of John so far, how the Jews say something that is so close to the truth, where they say, what, are you going to go to the dispersion and preach to the people there? Yeah. What, are you going to kill yourself? Kind of, I'm going to lay my life down. They keep on saying these almost truths. Here's an almost truth. We are going to stone you because you, being a man, make yourself God. The truth that they're not willing to see is the incarnation. They have it so close, they just have it backwards. 
No, Jesus is not the man who made himself God. Jesus is God who made himself man. That destroys their whole argument. They're looking for a man. And so when Jesus says that he's God, they're like, no, you, you're wrong. You're a man. You can't say you're, you, that you're God. And it's wrong. It's, no, I'm God, and I made myself man. That's how all of this works. If God had not come as a man, if God had not humbled himself to that point, none of this would happen. So he exposes the paradigms that they're not willing to, to see. He shows them, listen, they ask, just tell us something we want to hear. And he says, no, I'm going to tell you the things that you don't want to hear. I'm going to tell the things that you need to hear. And now then Jesus starts going and he starts challenging the flaws in their paradigm. The first way he does that is by looking at their law. Look what it says. Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, how many of you, when you read that passage, were like, I'm sorry, what? Wait, I said you are gods? Like, what's, what's going on here? Well, this comes back from, from the psalm. I, I think Psalm 82 and in Psalm 82, it does talk about that. And now there's some different discussions about who Psalm 82 is addressed to. But here's the point that Jesus is doing. And, and we're not going to preach all the way through Psalm 80. We don't have that time this morning. But here's the point. Jesus is making an argument from lesser to greater. It's a rabbinical argument. It's how the rabbis argue different things. Even in, the, in different books where we see Paul using that same format of arguing something. Hey, if this lesser thing is true, how much more so is this going to be true? If your law, if it's written in your law that I said you are gods, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, okay, if that, and they would agree, yes, it does say that. And then he says, and scripture cannot be broken. Do you, what do you say then about the one who was consecrated and sent? Okay, they received the word of God. I am the word of God. I am consecrated and sent. So he's saying, if you're going to say, if, this, if it wasn't blasphemy here, then it's not blasphemy for me. He's starting to challenge them on their faulty assumptions. But here's something I want to connect. When we talked about at the very beginning, what festival are they at? The festival of dedication. This word is that same word. Consecrated. Set apart. Dedicated. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that's truly consecrated. I'm the one that's truly sent. I'm the one that you're actually looking for. And yet you want to kill me because of these claims. He starts by just challenging their faulty reason. Now, now none of these two things, the, 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 using the law or logic, is enough in which they're like, all right, Jesus, we'll give you that point, in which case now they're, a, they're, they're saved. Okay, that's not the process that Jesus is doing. Jesus is slowly chipping away at their false paradigm. So he shows them first, like, listen, the things that you're saying, that the reason that you can stone me, that's not enough. Now let's look at logic. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. Earlier he asked them, are you going to stone me for my father's works, for the good works that I've done? And they didn't dispute that. 
So he says, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. If I've not done anything miraculous, if I haven't done anything good, you're right. Go ahead and just push me to the side because it's not true. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe my work, the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, this is a little confusing because what we're seeing, if we just read this quickly, we're saying, wait a second, Jesus is telling them it's okay for you not to believe me, but just believe my works? No, okay? Jesus is not saying in that sense that just believing the works of God is enough to save you. We can know that because all the way back in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and what does Nicodemus say to Jesus? Rabbi, we know that you are from God. Why? Because no one can do the works you are doing unless he comes from God. Okay, so does Nicodemus believe the works of Jesus, that they are works from God? He does. Is Nicodemus saved? No. Because then Jesus says, you don't know me. You can't see me. Only those who are born again, only those who are born of the Spirit can see those things. So why is Jesus then saying, is Jesus just giving them a pass and saying, all right, let's reach a compromise. I can see you're not going to believe me. Just believe my works. That'll get you through. No. Our last passage, who are the sheep? Those who enter through the door. It's believing in Jesus. So this is, this is what I think is happening. If you think back to uh, the story where we had with the blind man, one of the things that happens at the end of that passage is that the, the Jews go to the blind man and say, we don't know where this guy came from. We don't know where this Jesus is from. And the rabbi has one of my favorite things in scriptures where he's like, well, this is an amazing thing. Like, I can't believe you guys. And he basically just takes them to the woodshed and spanks them with logic because he says, look, look at this. It's obvious where he came from. Has anyone ever done these miracles and not been from God? No one could do these things unless he was from God. So at what point was the blind man right there? Was the blind man willing to believe the works of God? Yeah. In fact, he's evangelizing other peoples on the good work that, that Christ has done. But he still doesn't know who Jesus is. So then the passage that I read to you earlier where I talked, what, what happens right after that? Jesus says, hey, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, well, who is he? Again, he doesn't know. He says, who is he? So I might believe. It's me. And then he believes. So what is the progression there? He was willing to see the truth that the works were from God. And from that point, he was willing to see who Jesus really was. So this is what Jesus is doing. Believe the works, not so that you're saved. He's not promising that. That you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, what's the big thing they're not willing to accept? That he and the Father are one. Jesus is saying, listen, this is your next step. This is the paradigm that you need to address, address. This is the shift you need to make so that you can come to the point where you believe me. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. They were not willing to see it. And we might look at that and say, well, Jesus, you wasted your time. But we don't know what they're going to do. That's just that moment in their story. 
their story was still being written. Maybe they came to the point of believing. Here's my application for you if you're here and you have not yet received Christ. If you are not a sheep, it's because you are rejecting the true shepherd because you're looking for a different savior. You need to address whatever paradigm it is that's keeping you from believing Jesus. And do you know where you will find the truth that addresses it? It's right here. Jesus addresses the false paradigms. You might not have the same paradigm, false paradigms as the Jews, but whatever it is that's keeping you from Christ, I can guarantee you is a false paradigm. You need to address it with the truth. You must believe in the Messiah for who he is and not for what you imagined him to be. That is your only hope. That is the response to place your faith in him. But now I want to give some applications for those of you who are here who are believers. See, what we see in Jesus is that Jesus displays a life consistent with the true paradigm. If I said to you, hey, the world is not flat, and you're, you, you're a flat earther, you've believed that the world is flat, and I get to the point and I say, hey, it's not flat, it's okay, it's round. And, you're, and you get to the point where you're like, okay, I believe that. I'm good with that. I, I, I understand. I, I believe that. I'm like, great. Let's go on a cruise. Oh, I don't want to fall off the edge. It's round. Yeah, but phew, don't want to do that. You know, what if? How often do we, have we gone through the paradigm switch where we've shifted and we now say, Lord, you have the true paradigm. I believe what you say. And yet we live according to the old paradigm. Look, I want to look at three quick things in which Jesus demonstrates the, the true paradigm. The first is Christ's compassion for the lost. He didn't abandon them. If anyone knew beforehand, knew exactly what the result of a conversation would be, it was Christ. John tells us God, that Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men. And yet Jesus still offers himself to the world. Jesus still discusses with them, knowing that they're going to want to stone him and arrest him. And yet he still has compassion for them. And yet he still goes after them. He still seeks for the lost. If Jesus did not abandon them, how, what excuse do we have when we don't know how people will respond? And you might look at someone and say, but that case is hopeless. I know this guy. He's never going to come to Christ. Let, let me just get, let you in on a secret. Everything's hopeless. All of the cases are hopeless. You were hopeless, except for Christ. You can't make that happen. It's not because of a work that you've done. It's because of the work that Christ did. So to look at someone and say, wow, man, that's hopeless. What, what are we described as spiritually? Dead. Have you ever thought that, like, well, okay, that guy was dead, but it wasn't as much of a miracle to bring him to life as the other guy that was dead? Equal miracles. If they were dead, it's a miracle across the board. Do you demonstrate God's, Christ's compassion for the lost the way we should? If we truly believe this paradigm of what Christ came to do, that who did he come for? 
He came for the lost. That's what the Jews couldn't see. This is the new paradigm for us. Christ came for the lost. If you're willing to accept that, you must have compassion for them. Here's the second thing. Christ's commitment to faithfulness. One of the things that we so often are tempted to to sacrifice faithfulness is in order to achieve results. Think about what's happening in this passage. Could Jesus have told them what they wanted to hear in order to gain human results? Could he have said something that would have made them followers of, followers of him? Could he have shown them something that would have made them follow him in a human way? Absolutely. In fact, earlier in John chapter 6, after he feeds the 5,000, what do they try to do? They try to make him a king. And yet Jesus doesn't sacrifice faithfulness. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you know what, guys? Let's talk about all the things we agree on. Let's talk about those things. You know what? I think if we talk about these other things, you're going to end up picking up rocks and stuff, and I'm just not in the mood. So let's just talk about the things that we're equal on. No, he goes directly to the thing. Why? He's not interested in human results. He wants the results from God. Who is the one that gives the sheep? The ones that God the Father gave to me. It's a work that the Father does. So what results is Jesus going after? Look at the end of of our passage even here. At the end of the passage, it says, Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him, and they said, said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. If we were to look at these as results, who's the better evangelist? John. They believed after John talked to them, but they didn't believe after Jesus talked to them. Jesus must have done something wrong. No. When we sacrifice faithfulness to the idol of results, it's terrible. How many people do you think will end up going to hell because someone was just trying to fabricate results? I grew up on the mission field. We had people that would come and do these evangelism programs. Do you know what their main goal was? And I'm not going to speak to all of them, but for several of them, do you know what the main thing that they were trying to get? Their main goal was not faithfulness. Their main goal was results. They wanted to come back. They wanted to be able to have a number on a PowerPoint. What happens to that person that was falsely told, you're good, man. You're, you're one of the sheep. Don't worry about it anymore. You prayed the prayer. Is that a true result? We're going to be tempted to do this all the time. We're going to be tempted to sacrifice faithfulness before the idol of results. But again, look at the example of John and Jesus. Both of them got the right result. And you could say, well, how? The group that Jesus spoke to didn't believe, but the group that John spoke to did believe. How did they both get the right results? They both glorified God. That was the result. Our challenge to share the gospel for our members here of like go and share the gospel regularly is not on the result of your success of, hey, did they come to Christ? We are praying for that. We desire that. But you can't make that happen. Crystal Killian shared her testimony during our our members meeting. And what Crystal shared was not the result of people who had come to know Christ, but of a transformed heart. The result was that she glorified God. So look at Christ's commitment to faithfulness. His paradigm is not established by human success. His paradigm is established on divine success. 
Here's the last thing. Christ's confidence even in conflict. Because honestly, one of the things that keeps us so much from evangelism is because we think what will happen to us is what happened to Christ. Is that we're going to tell the truth and they're going to want to stone us. Maybe not literally, but it could be. We're scared of that. And yet Christ even told us that we should expect to be enemies of the world. So how is it that Christ, knowing all of these things, what was it that gave Christ confidence even in midst of the conflict? Look at the beginning of our passage. Christ, or throughout our entire passage, what is the underlying foundation? What is the word that Jesus says over and over and over again? My Father. Nine times in our passage, Jesus refers to God as the Father. His foundation is his relationship with the Father. What's our foundation? Again, John 1, 12, for to, so to, to all who believe, he gives them the right to be called children of God. What's our foundation? We have a heavenly Father. His relationship with the Father, then, is a, an element for his confidence. The works from the Father are part of his confidence. Why? Because they reveal Christ's identity. That's in verse 25. The works that I do bear witness. But here's the thing about our works. Our works do the same thing. Our works bear witness. In John chapter 9, Jesus tells his disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me. In John 14, verse 12, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. The works that Jesus did from the Father revealed his true identity. The works we do from the Father revealed our true identity. That's what Ephesians 2 talks about. It's not works for salvation. It's works because of salvation. It's the evidence. It gives us confidence in who we are. He talks about, the, uh, Jesus looks at the Father's attributes. Christ's assurance, my Father is greater than all. And because his Father is greater than all, he gives us this assurance. No one will snatch us out of our, out of his hand. That is our confidence in the Father's attributes. The Father's word. Christ's confidence is that the Father's promises will never be broken. It says that the, the Scripture will happen. And Scripture cannot be broken. That's what we confidence we have. Because all of these things that we know about us are because of what God's word says. We have that confidence. It's because of the Father's work. It says that Christ's mission, he was consecrated and sent. Turn real quick to John 17. Jesus has the, knows the Father's work is that Christ was consecrated and sent. Now look, look, let's look at what it says about us. In John 17, verse 14 through 19. This is Jesus speaking. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. That's the same exact word as consecrate them. Consecrate them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be consecrated or sanctified in truth. Christ's foundation of God's work that God sanctified or consecrated the Son, that he sent the Son, is the same thing for us. We are consecrated. We are sent. 
And we are linked to the Father. Christ says, I and the Father are one. His guaranteed victory is my guaranteed victory. That's our truth as well. As the worship team comes up, this is the mystery which which was revealed. Christ in you. Christ is one with the Father. Christ is in the Father, but Christ is also in us.